attorney at law, advocate at heart. So you know that song, I Fought the Law in the Law One? Well, my guest today is Clinton Galloway, and he fought the law and his side won at the United States Supreme Court in a case titled City of LA versus Preferred Communications. This story should be studied and regarded as the historic battle for the future of cable television against the forces of political corruption and mostly black Democrat politicians that enabled this or turned a blind eye. Now, nothing in media really surprises me. I'm not surprised by Twittergate. I'm not surprised to see government exerting monetary influence and power over social media companies. But what I do enjoy exploring is how we got here. This story should be an important case study for every American to understand the inner workings of corruption. Clinton Galloway says, you can't tell me anywhere is more racist than the city of Los Angeles. So while so-called anti-racism and critical race theorists continue to point out how white power and oppression are the reason for disproportionate sufferings of black Americans, my guest today tells a different story. We discuss how the systemic and institutionalized racism he suffered, he believes happened at the hands of powerful black politicians and judges. We discuss how this issue affects so many other issues in America, especially as concerns black Americans. The hypocrisy of drug wars, the destruction of gun control measures, the importance of informational media. Clinton is the author of two books, Anatomy of the Hustle and What Did You Think Was Going to Happen? Those books detail the story that we are going to discuss here. I will link both of those books in the show notes and there's a fantastic audiobook as well. There are layers to this issue. So this is going to be a longer and very packed episode, but I'm 100% sure you all can handle it. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Clinton. I'm so excited for us to dive into this incredible story that I, I'm sure that my listeners will be so excited to hear what the societal implications of it are. Um, but if we could start out with just you telling the listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay. My name is Clinton Galloway. I am the president of Drum Capital Corporation, an SEC registered broker dealer. I also have a CPA firm, which specializes in business management for entertainers here in Los Angeles. So the two of those are really what my primary things are. And you all were based out of LA. So is that how you ended up coming into contact with a lot of clients that were entertainers, um, celebrities, uh, aspiring actors, performers, musicians. Wall to wall. People who were successful in the business already. You know, we were dealing with people. Stevie Wonder was involved with us. Uh, the Bob Burton was involved with us at, at one point. We had a number of people who wanted to be involved. But again, when you get into a dispute with the city and governments, people in the entertainment business don't want to get into that because then it becomes negative for them. For me, I'm a CPA. I'm, a, I'm an investment banker. It doesn't matter what the city says. We we basically put the money together on our own. So we were able to raise $50 million in the minority community, and we had a, a partnership with an existing cable operator in the city. The largest cable operator in the city was supporting us and was part of our company. They owned 40%. We owned 60%, which was very unusual at that time for a minority company to have a controlling interest in a cable television company. Most of them were taking 20% as, you know, We'll pay off some minorities and give them a 10, 20%, something like that. But we took the position we wanted to own it because the importance of it was critical. And it's shown to be critical. 
It's happened. It's shown that over the last 40 years, well, last four decades. I do some real estate because I do some affordable housing development with some comp- with some friends and some associates that I know. We're also interested in doing things that we can have a control over and making the community better because you can make it better if you're waiting for the government to do it. And our philosophy is we want to avoid government and put the capital we have into doing things that are going to be productive for our community. So that's, that's how I got into all this. And, and your brother was pretty instrumental in this journey for you as well, right? And really, this, this all goes back 40 years for me. Because my brother first got us into the cable television industry because he knew something about it. I was a, a broker-dealer in Beverly Hills for Smith Barney at that time. And he told me what it was going to be. And he was very knowledgeable. He's a bright guy. So he was a doctor, and he's passed now. But he's the one who led us into this. And shortly after we got into it, he got into a dispute with, obviously, City Hall and the mayor and people like that. And we were we were in this business about six months before CBS and 60 Minutes accused my brother of a crime because they were tied with Tom Bradley. And they were mad at us about having things with Tom Bradley. So they accused him of a crime, signing some fraudulent insurance documents, which two years later in court were proved to be wrong. But in fact, it, it basically destroyed his life. It's like getting gunned down. 60 million people watching you be accused of a crime. At that time, 60 Minutes was the largest entertainment program in the United States. And they didn't even ask my brother to make a comment about it. He's had, they didn't even come to him and say, we, we're going to accuse you of something. Do you have anything to say? I know that Tom Bradley was very connected as a black politician at that time, a lot of connections in media. Can you kind of give my listeners uh, a idea of his influence at the time that you and your brother were pursuing this cable contract? Tom Bradley was the mayor of Los Angeles from 1979 when we first started this till 1993, when he was basically termed out after, he was mayor of Los Angeles for 20 years. After he was the mayor of Los Angeles, they decided you better put term limits on this because he was basically running the city. He wasn't running it for himself. He wasn't a bright enough guy to do that. He was basically a policeman who they made a mayor. And he did things that in 82, he ran for governor of the state. So Tom Bradley was running for governor while this was all going on. So he was obviously trying to get us to stop criticizing him and making clear what the city of Los Angeles had done, but he couldn't because we weren't holding to him. We were professionals ourselves and we had money. We didn't need any money from the city. We had plenty of money. I was in investment banking and we brought in top people. We had the richest people in the world even back. Adnan Khashoggi backed our play for this deal. He was the richest, at that point, he was the richest man in the world out of Saudi Arabia. We knew some people who knew him. I mean, he came and said, hey, this makes sense for the community I want to help. So that's, that's what happened. And how did you guys end up on Tom Bradley's bad side? Tom Bradley was running for governor in 82 when we were finalizing the deals. We we're trying to finalize an application in this situation. But he was basically saying, hey, I'm not going to even go to minority communities. He assumed that he had minority communities locked up. But again, because he had pissed us off, we put a bunch of money against him. Because he was, if he got to be governor, we would have had no chance. We at least thought we had a chance when he was just a mayor. Well, if he got to be governor, we'd have had no chance, and we were not going for it. So we put up money to, to fight him. And he ended up losing by a very small margin. Obviously, he blamed us because now we need black people fighting against a black mayor to be governor. But hey, we would do anything because he was not representing the community. He never did. So when we did this, we knew that there was a problem for the community because everybody thought, well, the black mayor, oh, the black people are just going to do great around here. Nothing could be farther from the truth. 
He was representing rich people from the west side of Los Angeles. And that's what he always did. So the person who got the franchise, ultimately, there was no other bidder. One bidder came back after they threw our license applications out. This was Eli Broad, who owned a company called Kaufman and Broad, one of the largest home builders in this country. So he came in and said, we want to do it. But Tom Bradley said, you know, of course you can do it because you'll be the only application. The other applicant, and they took in his friends, the people who were competing against us, they gave them 20% of the deal. So these people came in and said, we'll get the mayor to support you and you can do what you want. They never built anything. They never built a franchise. They never built anything in this city. They turned around and were allowed to sell it to somebody else for millions of dollars, despite the fact that the city had said, no, you cannot sell an unbuilt franchise. They were still able to do it. So the talk the city has about having any concern about the community was just talk. No one cares about the South Central community. And uh, there's an there's an excellent discussion that you have at the beginning of the book that kind of describes the title um, of Clinton's book, which is called What Did You Think Was Going to Happen? And it talks about how when you were a kid that you uh, were home with your brother and your brother had told you if you touch the stove, you won't get burnt. <laughs> and so you went ahead and touched it. And after you got burnt, your mom said, what did you think was going to happen? So <laughs> after you had gone through this investigation and you came, be- you eventually came before a judge that uh, that was um, black, Judge uh, Consuela Marshall. Um, what did you think was going to happen when you finally got to that point? Well, we thought it was quite obvious. You know, it was clearly a situation where the corruption in the city of Los Angeles was prevalent. Everybody knew it. Everything we had shown could clearly see it. They denied us a license. At the same time, there were only two applications. Both applicants were black. But they said, we're not going to give any of you all a license. So they came back and gave it to a rich Jewish guy three years after we had applied for it. So that was a process by which we went to the courts and said, hey, they can't do this. The judge said, yes, they can. We, she dismissed our case without even having a hearing. We filed the case and she dismissed it. We took it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in, in this area. And they said, unanimously said, clearly you have a case and it has to be heard. The city appealed the Ninth Circuit's decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in 1986, we had a hearing. 30 days later, the Supreme Court issued a ruling in our favor, a unanimous ruling that the city had to deal with this because to allow one company to use a public right of ways was a violation of the Constitution of the United States. And when it was sent back to this judge for trial, there was never a trial. In six years in our court, we never had a trial. We never even had a public hearing in our court. All hearings were done in private with the attorneys for the city and our attorney. It was all private business. So no one ever got to see. Although a number of major newspapers did cover the issue. The Wall Street Journal had a major article on us in 1989. Reader's Digest did a major article on us in 1990. All these were major news organizations, but no black newspaper, no black politician, no black leader, other than the ones who were dealing with us, said anything about it. They didn't care because they were part of the process and they were not going to get involved with fighting with the city. FBI said, hey, we can't do anything. And for my listeners, just to put it in perspective, you know, at the lower courts that we may have at, at our at our city or our county level, they have to hear every case that is that comes before them. But we are looking at a case that comes before the United States Supreme Court. They have the option whether or not to take cases. That's where you hear that a case has been granted certiorari. And so that's what makes this even more interesting is that we had such an egregious, uh, uh, such an egregious and a, a timely and an important matter 
with rights and access in the balance that the Supreme Court was willing to hear this case. And after years of working its way up through the lower levels, you had a decision in 30 days. Um, that and, and tell us a little bit about how that felt to get that decision in your favor. Well, it felt great. You know, it, it justified what we had done. One of the things that happened at the Supreme Court that I always believe made the Supreme Court rule unanimously in our favor is the Supreme Court asked a city attorney who was representing the city in the Supreme Court about what they did in terms of trying to deny applications or about technology or mainly about programming. Did you say anything to us about programming? The city attorney told the U.S. Supreme Court, I was there in Washington when he said it. He said, we do not ask anything about programming. And Justice Sandra Dale kind of said, hey, look, I'm looking at the application. There's a section called programming. How can you tell me you don't ask about programming when there's a section in the application called programming? And he said, well, you know, oh, I, I, I didn't mean it. She said, okay, that's enough. That was, the end of, that was the end of the hearing. She said, that's enough. We don't need to hear anymore. 30 days later, they had ruled unanimously against the city, and the city still didn't care because it came back to Judge Consuelo Marshall in 1986. And in 1992, she made a final ruling which said, yes, you, your rights have been violated, and for that, I'm going to give you $1. So 10 years of our lives of highly educated, highly intelligent, highly financed people came down to $1. So a person can take my rights for $1, then what are my rights worth? Nothing. So to confirm that, in 1993, Congress passed a law. The United States Congress passed a law in 1993 that said, if you lost your rights in the cable television industry, you can never collect damages. And Joe Biden led that push. Joe Biden was a senator at that point. Wow. Am, am I correct that, that the fact that that this judge only issued a dollar um, in damages is also part of the reason that it was hard to leverage and actually enforce the decisions that had been made? Because if there isn't a ruling for damages, there's kind of no push or no impetus for the opposing party to change what they're doing. Is that, Absolutely. will you say that? adds to it. Absolutely. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. If you give me $1 for 10 years of my life in a major industry that's worth tens of billions of dollars, then in fact, what you're saying is you people don't have any rights. And that's what the judge basically told us. Your rights are worthless. So when we went to appeal her decision about no damages, then Congress passed the law which said, no matter what you say, no matter what the courts say, you can never get damages if you lost your rights in the cable television industry. And that was technology. And that in the 1980s, technology was in the cable television industry. There was no internet in the 1980s. The internet didn't come until the 90s. So technology deprivation would be a situation where you could never catch up because now you were 10 years behind all technology. So when it came to the internet, cable could have um, created a situation where things you did on the internet could be done through cable without a computer because that was a major issue in minority communities was access to computers because they were so expensive. But cable had the ability to do it. But the cable television companies didn't care because the only ones it affected was poor and minority communities. So they were more interested in about trying to maintain their level of, and you see what they do now with broadband. So now the cable companies come in and they issue broadband. So now they're the big companies because no, now that they've gotten around broadband, now the cable companies are starting to find a way to get more money. The government gave more money. The government said, well, we'll subsidize everybody who wants to get into this, into a cable television broadband system. We will subsidize them. But the fact is, they're subsidizing the cable company. Because if you've been locked out of technology for 40 years, getting in this year is not going to change what you know about this whole situation. And so we were locked out. And so our children are not educated properly. 
and we don't have the moral values that we would institute in our children if we control media. I remember that you said in the book that cable TV, at this point in time, that you guys began your journey from South Central to the Supreme Court, that at this point in time, cable television was like the internet of today. The same way that the internet was groundbreaking for us today and that gives us so much information and news for us today, that cable television was like that back then. Could you kind of talk a little bit about what it meant for you guys to be in the running for uh, bringing cable television to South Central? Well, it was important. My brother, who's passed now, was the one who got involved with it early. This was 1979, the beginning, and he saw what cable television could be. Nope, they didn't even have a license in L.A. Nobody wanted to do it in L.A. So we're only, you know, we were a minority company. We came forward to do it because it was so important. It would only be a period of time of basically eight months that you would have the opportunity to do something that would last 40, 50 years. In that eight-month period of time, we went to the city and said, hey, we want to do this. What do we have to do? We received politicians and their deputies came to us and said, hey, you got to take my friends in. you got to pay us bribes. Obviously, from my standpoint, it was... We're not going to do that. We came from New York. We're not taking no bribes from no crummy councilman here. So we, we basically took the position that, no, we can't do that. And once they realized we weren't going to pay the bribes they wanted, they were against us. So the people who we were competing against were people who had worked for the city. These were city councilmen's deputies who are now coming to us and saying, hey, give us, give us your, part of your company to do it. But hey, you don't have any money. You don't have any experience. You don't have any knowledge about what we're doing. Why would we want you? And basically, they were, their basic position was, we work for the politicians. We are part of the political process. And you talked about in the book that early in this process, when you started to see that things were not going fairly, that you had attempted to reach out to to a city councilwoman who was a Democrat and tried to talk to her about what was happening. Could you kind of tell us a little bit about that attempt to to talk to her about this? We went to her because she was one of the council people. There are 15 council persons here. There were three black male council persons here, and two, two out of the three of them were clearly on the other side because one of their deputies was in the other group. We took the position that, in fact, he shouldn't be allowed to do this because we came to him to get a franchise, and he was working for the city when we first approached him. The, the lady who we went to was named Peggy Stevenson. She was a white councilman here in Los Angeles, and when we told her what we had been through, she said, I don't we can terminate this conversation because I don't have any alternative but to call the district attorney on this. Because what we had told her was the guy who had been working for the city now was telling us that we had to give him money to do it. So we went, obviously the, the district attorney called us and he played, pretending he was going to do something. But we, again, LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department came to us and said, hey, tell us what happened here. We explained to them how we got into this, what we were doing, and what they had approached us with, which was basically give us 60% of your company and we'll allow you to do business. That wasn't acceptable to us. It wasn't acceptable to me, and it wasn't acceptable to my brother. So when people come and tell you, we, you've got to give us control of your company, that's just gangster business. And I, again, I'm not worried about gangsters, because I've dealt with gangsters before. But to see it coming out of City Hall in Los Angeles was really kind of a shock at the beginning. But when we realized who was in City Hall, it no longer became a shock. Because you would be hard-pressed in Los Angeles to find a lower class of people than the people working in City Hall. And it's been proven over the last 15 years, because... Like right now, three of the council, of the 15 councilmen have either been indicted or convicted of political crime. So when you have 20% of your organization convicted, what do you got? You don't think everybody else is so honest down there, do you? And we know it. So racism has been prevalent here in the city. 
rampant and it's been enforced by black politicians, people like Tom Bradley, people like a federal judge who said, I'm not going to allow you to do business, even though the Supreme Court has told you you can do business. I'm not going to allow you to do business. When you get that sort of behavior, and that's in Los Angeles. And so what we see is you have to deal with that and you have to address it. So we address it by saying, hey, we'll appeal what you're saying, judge, up to the Supreme Court. And we won. In 1986, we won our case at the Supreme Court unanimously. It was six years in this court after she had delayed us for three years. We spent 10 years in front of Judge Consuelo Marshall, a black federal judge who was appointed based upon Tom Bradley telling Jimmy Carter to appoint her. So she was going to support Tom Bradley because she had worked for his friends. So that was a situation where we couldn't do anything except fight the battle and say, hey, we're not going to allow a federal judge, a single federal judge to stop what's necessary in our community because it was necessary. Absolutely. Did, so at what point after the initial investigation, well, the alleged investigation by the Hello. police, at what point then did you and your brother realize that you needed to get an attorney involved and that this would this would be something that would need to go to the courts? Did you have representation at that point? Oh, yeah. We had representation all the way through. When we first submitted the application, we had attorneys representing us because we realized what was going on. So when we got through this, and, and they had approached us, we were going through the process. So we filed an application in 1980. And in 1982, they started having hearings about the applications we had filed two years previous. So the people who told us we had to do business with their friends, they were the ones who were going to review the applications. Well, we had a whole department, a whole department, a whole process. You know, as a part, they were issuing these licenses through the Department of Transportation, which did taxi cabs. Once they got rid of us, then they created a whole new department called the Department of Telecommunications which was the only franchise license issued from that department, was for South Central LA, the black community. That was the only license they had control over. So when we saw what they were doing, we went to the, to, uh, obviously we talked to the police. They were very receptive to what we were talking about because they were familiar with what the city was doing. But they took it to the district attorney, the district attorney who was, again, Gil Garcetti, who was the father of the, the mayor just let. Eric Garcetti was his, was his son. So you see how this works in LA. The father's the DA, the son becomes the mayor. So you see, this is, this is all an inside game here. So when we went to him, he said, hey, the people who you're accusing of the crime won't cooperate with me, so I can't prosecute. So from there, we went to the FBI. The FBI said, hey, we know what's going on here because we see what's going on. We read the newspapers. It was all in the newspapers. So they said to us, what you have to do, one is you have to move out of the city of Los Angeles. When they told me that, I realized what was going on here. And I moved from the city of Los Angeles and sold my condo in Los Angeles to move out of the city into a county area because I was afraid, and they made it quite clear, you're dealing with some real gangsters here. The people they were representing were straight-up gangsters. So you better get out of here because what's going to happen? They tell me straight up. One night they're going to come to your house and find a bunch of drugs and guns in your house, and you're going to be under arrest. Because LAPD was where Tom Bradley had worked for 30 years. The mayor had been a, a major policeman. So the police were looking out for the mayor because he was their friend. Your book also mentions that there is a lot of hypocrisy that happened in, that you got to see in this city in particular. Um, uh, one example that you mentioned is the name change. Some may not know what area that South Central actually refers to anymore because there was so much effort put into changing the name for the sake of an image. Can you kind of describe how the city went about doing that? Well, South Central was an area. It was, it was clearly defined as an area that was dying. But they, they put out the 
numbers in terms of what the percentage of population was black because it had been combined with two other franchises before they separated them. South Central was basically 50% black when they started it. When they got rid of the white areas and the Latin areas, which they gave licenses to, we applied for all those also, it ended up being 80% black. So when they got that, they didn't care about what the situation was because no one could do anything because we did not have the ability to interface with, with the politicians. And they had never paid attention to the minority community. I mean, it was low-income people for the most part. There were a lot of high-income and middle-income people in these communities. They were not allowed the access to the technology that everybody else in the United States had. So that a decade of tech, technology denial would lead to the problems that you see in the communities now. The lack of education, the lack of economic development, all these things are tied to a major industry that we were denied access to. And if we didn't come in early in the game, they'd have said, oh, well, you should have come in in 1979 or 1980. We were there in 79. We were there in 80. So you can't say we should have done, because that's what they kept wanting to push. They couldn't say it because we had been there. We had filed the application, but they didn't care. And that's what goes on in the city of Los Angeles. That's why it's so racist and corrupt. No place is more, I mean, you can go to Mississippi. You're going to find a hard fell to find a place more racist and corrupt than the city of Los Angeles. And it's just been continuous. All over the years I've been involved with this, I've seen so many councilmen get indicted, put in jail, and just have to resign because they're basically corrupt people. That's what goes on here in Los Angeles. All this image about what they pretend to be is not what they are at all. Wow. Um, it is frustrating, I think, for many that look on, on the outside, and, and a lot of politicians kind of point to laws that are passed or incidents that happen in cities like Los Angeles as saying that that should be the catalyst for change. And a lot of us in cities that aren't experiencing those issues are like, why should we... Um, change or or alter laws or the ways or policies that things are operating in response to a city like Los Angeles when as you pointed out there is a uh, a unique and and actually deeply systemic issue with racism that is happening in Los Angeles and that is probably happening in many urban communities in California um, that uh, you, you, you don't see to that same degree yet New York. New York is a big one, too. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it, it's it's frustrating. Your book also talks about how that because of things like this, which, you know, we can we can infer that this is not the only city where something like this happened with the advent of cable, um, that because of 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 instances like this, that what we lost in the potential for black programming that was uh, focused and centered and driven by the needs of the locality is that um, m maybe what shapes uh, the the issues that we have with black targeted programming today. We see a lot of um, lifestyles, materialism, um, uh, behavior, crime, um, all kinds of things that are glorified and that are uh, uh, used as the backdrop for black programming that um, maybe could have been shaped differently if there had been black businessmen like your company that had been allowed to take part in the shaping of, of cable programming. Um, could you talk a little bit about what kinds of, of news and education that you guys would have liked to see come to your area specifically? Well, I think you've hit upon the key element. The most important thing to us was education. Now, again, Education was important to me and my brother because 
my parents came from Birmingham, Alabama. We grew up in New York City. And one of the important things they always taught us was education. Education will get you to where you need to be. But you can't do it without access to the educational system. When we went from Birmingham, Alabama to New York City, the educational system was completely different. Black people were in integrated schools. It was all different. So we got in a, a very high level of education. So my brother was, he was declared a genius by the city of New York when he was 15 years old. He got out of high school when he was 15. My brother was technically, and he was, I mean, literally they declared him a genius. So he went to school. He was a, he was a doctor by the time he was 24, okay? So he had gone through college, med school, and intern by the time he was 25 years old. So he was way ahead of the game. I came up with, I went to school on a sports scholarship. I wasn't the brightest kid in school, but I, I became very good at accounting once I learned what accounting was. I had no idea what accounting was until I got to college. My father didn't even account. He was, we worked for the subway system. So our perception of all these things was basically hard work makes the difference. And we always took the position that we can do anything because we've seen people do anything. And the important point to us was education. The educational system here had to be modified for the people that it was trying to serve. People coming from Beverly Hills can't tell you what your children need in South Central Los Angeles because they don't know. They don't know what black kids need. They don't know about them. So they're trying to tell us what we need. But again, moral values, the moral values are decided by media. When you see it, media decides the moral values. So you see the moral values are so lax here in, in the U.S. right now. And the economic impact, the economic impact of cable television would go on indefinitely. Technology impact of, on money has been tremendous. It changed who was wealthy and who would be wealthy. It changed those who were poor into people who could live properly. So without this, we didn't have the ability in, in the South Central community to do that. We didn't have the ability to impact the people with education, moral value. And so we see the moral value. Kids are going around shooting each other dead. Just over anything, any kind of foolishness, they're willing to shoot somebody. And we can't develop this because we don't control the educational system. And the educational system has failed. Now in the last few years since the pandemic has come across, everybody realizes that you've got kids who can't read and they're in the 10th grade. Okay, that's ridiculous. So what happens to these children? They end up in crime. They have no alternative but to go into crime. They can't get jobs. They don't have, they can't read, they can't write, and they're getting out of high school. They can barely speak their name. So this creates a situation of deadly consequences in urban communities. And that's what we've seen. We've seen mass murder go along. The murder rate for minorities, for black people, is basically 10 times what it is for white people and 20 times what it is for Asians. Okay? The issue is we don't respect ourselves because we have never been able to create a situation where we could talk about ourselves through, from ourselves, creating the images that we believe are important. And these images are very important to children because once you're 12 years old, if, you, if you're pulling guns on people at 12, you're a gangster. You've got to be a gangster when you're 25. That's just a fact. I've seen it and I know it. And I grew up in, like I said, I grew up in New York City. I've seen gangsters. There's no situation of coming to Los Angeles and having to fight a gangster. That, they're all over the place. But without education, without moral values, and technology altered how the, the paradigm of economics worked in this country. Those people who were just regular people became billionaires with technology, yet minorities were locked out of that same technology. How can we improve ourselves when we can't get involved with the system that run this country? And politicians knew it. All the black politicians knew it. But they said nothing. I mean, Maxine Waters. Maxine was here. I talked to Maxine several times. When she was still in the state senate, before she went to Congress, okay, Maxine said, hey, there's nothing I can do 
But if you want to give my husband, Sidney Williams, some money, we might say, no, no, we're not doing that. We're not paying bribes to you or anybody. So, and, and hers was, she, honestly, she did not ask for a bribe. She said, you might want to have my husband involved in, in being an investor. But he had no money. How are we building an investor with no money? So, And just for a run through, so far we have, um, far we have a Democrat appointed black female judge. We have uh, Tom Bradley, who was mayor of Democrat, who, who, yes, who ran for mayor and then ran for governor. Is that correct? Yes, he ran for governor. And and then um, then we had two or three black Democrats that were on uh, city. Okay. And then um, we have Joe Biden, who was um, in Congress at that time. Um, then you also mentioned in the book, we also have um, the NAACP that you said was aware of this uh, entire case and issue that was happening, uh, the Urban League. So many, the goals that they state that they have seem like they would be in alignment with helping black businessmen succeed in winning um, this bid and this opportunity to bring cable to South Central, which was a community that was filled with minorities and underprivileged individuals. And yet, at every turn, all the people that we have listed off were not helpful in changing this situation. For everything that they've been complicit in, what do you think is is the root of that? And what do you think was the impact on cable programming for the families of South Central because of their inaction? Well, two things. One is the denial of access to cable television went on for a decade. Cable television did not get into South Central until the late 1980s and the early 1990s. So a decade where everybody else in the country had access to this technology and the information that comes through it was denied to the community, which had the lowest educational levels, the lowest income levels, and the highest minority participation. So this was known when we did this. So they took this situation and nobody ever said anything about it. In 10 years. So other major, you know, again, Barron spoke about it. The Wall Street Journal spoke about it. New York Times spoke about it. All the major publications that were not black controlled spoke about it. But Ebony never spoke about it. No minority publication ever spoke about it. And no minority person ever stood up and said, hey, this is a Supreme Court decision and no one is, has done anything. And they're ignoring the decision of the United States Supreme Court. So if you can do that, then in fact, you don't care about the courts. You don't care about justice. You don't care about law. And so I've learned that, in fact, all this talk about law and justice and all this, that's talk. But the reality is, when it comes down to their best interest, they were looking out for their best interest. So a decade went by without technology being available in the community. And that technology deprivation would go on forever and goes on until this very day. As you can see, last year, they passed the law and said, well, you know, the people who can get cable television, we're going to subsidize it. This is 40 years later. What are you talking about? It's ridiculous because now you're taking a position that in fact, we deprived you for 40 years, now we're gonna make up for it this year? No, there's so much crime and, and lack of education in our communities that it's destroyed the community. That's what happened, and that's where it came from. So again, Maxine Waters has been in power since what, the late 70s? It's, and she's been in power for 40, 50 years, but her power in Congress is minimized because she's only one person out of 500. But again, they make her seem like she's somebody special. She's not. She does the front work for people who are trying to screw the black community. You know, again, it's, it's a situation where the Democratic Party controls minority communities and they run it like they like they 
control it. It's basically a one-party system in minority communities throughout the country for the most part. We're seeing some change over the last five, 10 years, but this has been going on for 50 years. And the 40 years I've been involved with it, it's amazing. As you pointed out, there's, there's almost a total one-party control over an entire um, demographic of the electorate. And when you have that kind of situation, there really isn't any impetus for change. If someone is knows that they can take your vote for granted, they know that you're going to continue voting for them. And and this can go for any uh, for any segment of the electorate. But I think it especially rings true where we have such a uh, such a clear cut um, racial divide on that on that voting um, that there's no reason to change what they've been doing. There's a lot of reason to continue the same problems that create the same favors to be given out and the same people to be elected. But there's not a lot of impetus to actually eliminate problems, to create solutions, to make change. And it's devastating to the black community in a way that I think your story really illustrates so clearly. And I, I know that in the book you had mentioned how there is there is a very interesting through line when you look at how the policies, not just the politicians, but the policies that are set in place uh, uh, in accordance with the Democrat platform and um, Democrat policies and towing the party line in those policies, those policies don't serve black communities. You talk about how um, inner city communities, urban communities, they're highly uh, dangerous communities where individuals often are drawn to uh, gun, gun ownership um, or gangs because of the heightened danger of living in that community. Guns present a way for self-protection and gangs present a way of self-protection and, and belonging and, and being uh, a part of something bigger than yourself that can maybe protect you. And so the, the, the Democrat policy that continues to push gun control is actually pushing these communities into further uh, involvement with gangs and into a further intra-racial violence. And so what were some other policies that you that you saw uh, during this walk and this awakening that you're having that were like, this is not a policy that's really benefiting black communities. These are not laws that are really helping us to find success. Well, I think, again, you point out gun control is an issue because guns are so prevalent in a community that's violent the illegal nature of guns made everybody subject to arrest. So you had to have a gun to walk down to South Central because at that point, the gangs were being developed or taking over the city. But the city did not do anything to stop the growth of gangs, but rather their behavior increased the role of gangs because we could not control media, which would tell our children and our young people what was important here about education. Uneducated people with guns are going to be a problem at all points in a society, no matter where the society is. Uneducated people look for the simplest answer to a problem. And generally, it's gunfire. So you say, who are they shooting? They're not shooting white kids. They're shooting black kids. They're running down the street shooting machine guns in the crowds. Nobody says anything about it. But the economics of it are critical because you cannot have economic development in a community that is controlled by crime. And that's what South Central and many minority communities. Again, I was raised in Jamaica, New York. So I've seen crime there, too. The technology was denied to South Central all these years in order to protect the friends of politicians. That's what they did. So they wanted to protect the financial benefit that would go to the people they like, but the community be damned. 
So there was no education. Education fell big time. Economic development fell big time. The moral values of our children were determined by what was on television, which was trash. So we see that these things all combined to create a, a situation in minority, not only in L.A., in Chicago and Houston. Because this corruption was going on all over the country. Chicago, Houston, New York, Denver. Every, every major city that had a minority population was in the same situation. The politicians talk about what they want to do. They're not interested in really making changes. They're more interested in seeing that they stay there forever. And that's what's happened. Politicians in this black politicians stay in office pretty much forever unless they're indicted or die. So these are the things that I, I found were very upsetting and very concerning because the development of any community must be based upon the economics that go with the total society. Without that, you cannot improve yourself. You cannot create jobs. You cannot create industry. You cannot create benefit. L.A. was a place where we'd create programming that would go all over the country in minority communities, all over the country, all over the world, because L.A. was the key for programming for all people in the world. You mentioned that education was key. Am I correct that you're referring like not just I know that your brother was a doctor and you were a CPA, um, but am I correct that you're referring not just to education that could take place at a, at a graduate level or in colleges, but also that um, there's not a lot of trade schools, there's not a lot of skill building opportunities. There's not a lot of uh, moral education that's happening with the the um, the persistence of fatherlessness. There's a lot of education as in building the individual, creating a well-rounded individual with the values, work ethic, a skill that they can put uh, their hand to and um, a, a wide variety of things that are lacking from these communities, not just a college education, but a, a wide range of, of education. The education process starts from the very beginning. And again, if you if your children are afraid to go to school, which they were in South Central, you're walking down the streets and kids are shooting guns at you. You can't get an education when you're afraid to go to school. This is part of the problem. And so when you fall behind, you never catch up. When you get to the fourth grade and you've got a one first grade education level, there's a this statistic that says, for those who cannot read properly in the fourth grade, they are 80% likely to be involved in crime by the seventh grade. Okay? Because without education, you cannot participate in society. You cannot get decent jobs. Without education, you cannot do any of the things that are necessary. The moral values are key to any community. We have to establish, and the moral values were established not by media when I was growing up, but by the community. We grew up in a community. I lived there for my parents, lived there for 60 years. So all the people in the community knew you, and if you were doing something wrong, they would tell your parents on you. So that kept you in line to some degree. But now with all the technology and everything like that, people can do whatever they want. They go on the internet and they're doing all kinds of crazy things because nobody's there to control them. And there is no control. So we see this has come where people are not educated, but they're spending, they've got all the technology they want, but they can't do anything with it. And without the education, there can be no growth. And without moral values, you cannot have true education. So the economics changed with technology. Those who were poor before became rich. You know, Bill Gates wasn't rich in the 1990s. When technology developed and he became pushed the Internet and Microsoft, then he became rich. And a thousand people who worked for him became rich. OK, there's a thousand millionaires that came out of Microsoft. The same thing with every other major company. Many, many, many millionaires came out of each company because they had the ability to spread capital throughout their entire company and to provide jobs that were meaningful. So when this expanded, the only people locked out were minorities. And they were locked out at the behest of minorities. 
if again, if a white person had said what they said to me, everybody be screaming, that's racism. It's still racism. The fact that a person is black doesn't make it not racism. The effect upon black people is what makes it racism. And you you the front men like Tom Bradley or the elected officials here, and they do whatever they want. So because nobody's there, we don't have a newspaper, we don't have access to media, we don't control any stations. What black entertainment television? What is that? It's a it's a joke. I'm sorry. You know, I, I got nothing against Bob Johnson, but I I met Bob Johnson in the in the early eighties before he had black entertainment television. But it's a joke. They want to pretend they're doing something, but they're not doing anything. Running the same movies fifty times a year is not gonna help us. Running the same trashy shows is not gonna help. When they had individuals, Tavis Smiley was one of the people who was on black entertainment television. They said, we're going to get rid of all this original programming, all these people telling about what's going on because the, they wanted to sell cheap programming to the minority community because there was no competition. And Tavis Smiley went to PBS. I've, been, I've interviewed with Tavis. He's a wonderful guy. But these are the type of people we need to have in, inputting information into our communities who are knowledgeable, who are educated, who know what's going on. They didn't want it, and they didn't have to have it because the federal courts allowed them to get away with it. And specifically, a single federal judge. We had 12 appellate judge rules in our favor. The Circuit Court of Appeals and the United States Supreme Court. Not one vote went against us in any of these bodies. The only one to rule against us was Judge Consuela Marshall, who held all her hearings in private and did nothing for six years. How do you get a case back from the Supreme Court and you don't get a hearing for six years? Come on, it's a joke. I remember reading in your book about Tavis Smiley's exit to PBS, and I was shocked to hear that he had ever even been on BET because I grew up watching Tavis Smiley on PBS and I grew, up with a BET. I grew up with a BET that was 106 in Park and so it's very strange for me to picture yeah. those two at some point ever having been together but when you laid it out in the book kind of how um uh black programming was shaped over time in the entertainment industry and how it took a very long time before black television became anything but entertainment value. It, it, it's shocking. And I think a lot about how we, we look at the fall of previous uh, civilizations and a lot of times it's just done by distracting uh, the populace with bread and circuses. And what is anything that's on black TV? It's just set up to distract and to to fill our, our children and our families' minds with a set of moral values that are not conducive to success, are not conducive to uh, being a productive citizen. And we don't see that with mainstream television. We don't see that with mainstream cable. We see a variety of family values, a variety of educational programming. But what's scary and sad is when the people who say they want to help specific communities succeed and that want to defeat racism or actually utilizing racism to close out people from contributing to what our families see, to what our communities see. It's, it's, it, it was just your book so well lays that out. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's important that people understand that. They see black people on TV and they think they're doing something. But a lot of this is just junk. You know, people, they're dating somebody or they're sleeping with somebody. I don't really care. I want to know about what's important and what the information is that I need to know to make good decisions. Without that, you're just lost. And that's what happened with black entertainment television. 
they had stopped all the people who had access to information that could be useful. And there were a lot of highly educated people there, because we were all in from colleges and universities, doctorate degrees and all this. But without the access to the media that you use, you can't do anything. You can't say anything if you don't have access to cable and you want to say something. So that was part of the problem. And so when we did that, we realized that cable controlled this. Then when the internet came, again, people said, well, you can't get the internet because you don't have enough money to buy a computer. But the, the internet could have been run through the cable television system without a need for a computer. And it was being done in other areas. But because it was only interested in minority and low-income communities, no one wanted to do anything. And that's what competition does. They locked us out and said, hey, the Supreme Court said you cannot just have one company in the community. We said that that's, that's true. We went to do it. And they said, we're only going to have one company. And you go to court and try to prove it. We went to court and proved it. We got to a minority judge here in federal court. She said, we're not going to do anything about it. We just got to let it roll. So that situation created a situation for us which said, you can't really do anything. We have to sue you. And that's what we did. We, we took it all the way. We spent 13 years trying to fight this system. And all we did is lost a stack of money and a stack of time. But I would have felt bad if I didn't make the effort to do it. And again, the FBI was involved. Police department was involved. Everybody was involved. But with corruption in politics, you see it face to face when you are the one whose money's on the line. And we lost millions of dollars doing this. It's very interesting to see that the individuals who were um, stopping uh, a really what could have been a very beneficial capitalistic venture are the same people who a lot of times are pushing for um, for socialism and for uh, communism. When we see a situation here where you attempted to make a capitalistic venture, you had the capital, you put in the work, and you had a business that should have received a fair shake at receiving um, the opportunity to bring cable to this area, but it didn't. And then, you know, in addition to the economic policies that are pushed by the Democrat Party, there's also a lot of concern with how they are never willing to look into the effects of um, fatherlessness or how uh, the history of how um, uh, welfare programs and their criteria for allowing families to receive welfare and not having a father in the home has played into uh, the economic state that we have today, they they yell and they scream all the time about how there is a lack of generational wealth. There is a lack of opportunities for um, wealth building over time. Um, but it's actually that same party that has these policies that are standing in the way of that. It, it's the Democratic Party has been blocking progress from Black America. Again, I saw it in 1979. That's when my brother got involved. And again, I wasn't involved because I was, I was working for a Beverly Hills investment banking firm. My brother called me to get involved with it because now it became a matter of money. Money was my specialty. I'm a CPA. I'm in investment banking. I know about money. So that's why I came in because we needed someone to know about it. So we put together a deal with our partners who had already had a franchise here in Los Angeles. They had the largest franchise right next to where we were going. So it made sense. They could take their equipment and use it with us. And we can get on air sooner than anybody else in the world. So when we did this, they were obviously concerned because now we had pissed them off because we didn't want to pay the bribes they wanted and we didn't want them to control the media. That's what it came down to. We'll do, and again, yeah, if they asked for 5-10%, we'd have given them 5-10% just as a nuisance factor. But when a guy tells you, I want to control of your company and you don't know anything about what we're doing, no, I'm not going for it because I can't go for it because I represent the community. 
and the community needs access to the, to the digital technology that went on in this country. It became a matter of economics. Without having access to the economic forces of cable television, of the internet, and all these things, we were locked out. So you see now, in the last year, they passed a law which said, we've got to give $60 billion so people can get access to cable television. Come on. You knew this. You started this. Joe Biden, you're the one who stopped us from getting involved in cable television in the 1990s. Now, you want to pass these laws, so it's, it's just junk. What they're saying is we want to subsidize the cable companies because they're losing market with the new technology that's coming about. Again, the Internet has changed all this. You don't need a wire into your house anymore. You can get most of this programming on the Internet now. So in order to subsidize them, they said we're going to give a bunch of money. And, if, and again, if you haven't had cable in 40 years, I'm sorry, you're not going to be overly in, interested in getting it now unless it's free. And so the government is giving away money to give to the cable companies to subsidize them because they've lost market share to the new technologies that have been coming about. And that's what goes on in this country. That's what goes on, especially in Los Angeles. But again, I, I mentioned Los Angeles specifically because you have never seen a level of corruption like you see in the city of Los Angeles. And what they do is they use black politicians to screw black people. And they've been doing it for 40 years because I can document it, and I have documented it. And so people tell me about, well, you know, if you did this, no, there was nothing we, we could do. Unless, unless we want to get involved with a bunch of crooks. And I don't get involved with crooks either in politics or anywhere else because it's just a problem and you never get done with crooks. So that's what we found out. And the black leadership meant that we don't have to deal with them because we can say they've got a black leader. And that's what's going on right now in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. They've all got black mayors. Do you think life's improved in the south side of Chicago because of the black mayor? I know life has not improved in New York because I go there a lot. And I know life has not improved for black people in Los Angeles because I'm here. And I see what goes on. The gangs are running wild because there's no control and they have no education. And no one was willing to provide them the education they needed to become a part of society. So they created their own society. And in doing that, it's been detrimental to the communities in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. This put all in Houston, Chicago, Dallas. It's all these places were the same. And so they, that's why they passed the law in 93 and said, if you've been screwed by cable television, you can never collect damages. What can you do? Oh, we could go back and fight it. I spent 13 years fighting with governments. I'm not fighting anymore. And again, a year after this all happened, both my brother and I got very sick. My brother had uh, leukemia, and I developed a brain tumor in 1994, one year after this all happened. So we were both very sick. And obviously, so we settled it out, paid our attorneys. They paid us, a, I think, a million, 1.4 million or something. And most of it went to our attorneys because they did most of the work. We could, you know, we could never recover what we had put into this. But the fact was the community would never recover from the damages that had been done by denying them their rights over a decade, 10 years of not having access to technology. Education suffered, moral values suffered, crime went wild in, in L.A., especially in South L.A. It went wild. People were gunning down people on the streets, dropping down the street to shoot machine guns at people because there was no government here. And we couldn't do anything about it. They wouldn't allow us to improve our community, even though we were putting up our own money. No money from, we don't want your money. We don't need your money. But that's what happened. And that's what happens in, in minority communities all across the country when this happened. It was going on everywhere. And what can you do? We did what we could do. We spent 13 fighting. We went to the Supreme Court. We came back and a black federal judge held the case for six years. By the time she got the case, you know, she had the case since 1983 and gave us a final decision in 1992. That's 10 years of hearings that we had to appeal her up and down the line. And when we got back, the appellate process only took three years. 
But we got back down. It was six years before we could even get a trial. We never got a trial. It's it's very interesting to hear how things were functioning in a different state because in Ohio, it is a purple state, and I think that it has that that balancing kind of in a way keeps many states honest because neither side wants to mess up. You don't have votes in the bag. It could sway either way with each election. And um, someone's always going to call you out. And so I think that there we do see uh, a lot more. um, I think that there's been over time more emphasis put on primaries and more candidates that are interested in running as third party independent. Do you see that as kind of a path to moving towards um, less corruption in states where there is uh, a heavy blue um, established uh, voting record? Do you see that like a third party could maybe upset states that have that heavy Democrat influence? I think I've written about and I think it's extremely important that we develop a third party, not only for minorities, but for everybody in this country. We have a two-party system. They've run this country for 250 years, and we're going to hell. So when we look at this and we say, but specifically for minorities, we've been caught in the Democratic Party for the last 50, 60 years, but they have done nothing for us. We have not improved our lives. We have not improved. The children have not improved. So yes, we need a third party, and I've talked about that because the third party is not to control. It's basically a fulcrum. And if you get 10 12% of the Congress being a third party, and they're going to have to switch based upon what this medium wants. We want medium. We want something that's fair for everybody. We don't want to control it necessarily, but we don't want to be controlled. And that's what the fulcrum does. You balance it on either side, but if you move the fulcrum an inch, then one side becomes more powerful. That's what we, I think is, is important. It's important for to have a third party in this country. We're the only industrialized democracy in the world without a third party. And we've had some success with third parties. Again, when, what was his name, uh, H. Ross Perot ran. He ran as a third party. He got 20% of the vote as a, th- as a third party. Okay, that took out George Bush when he ran. Minorities, we don't have candidates. We get Jesse Jackson, Jesse Jackson, Jesse Jackson. Every year is Jesse Jackson. And Jesse did nothing. I've talked to Jesse. Jesse did nothing. He's a clown. Excuse my language, but, you know, that's just my feeling about him. He does nothing because he gets paid by the Democratic Party. Look at Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton now has got TV shows. He's never done anything. Al Sharpton was new about this. Everybody knew about it because it was covered throughout the entire country in major publications. The only publications that did not cover the issue of South Central were black publications. Ebony, Jet, Amsterdam News. None of these places covered anything about it. So the Wall Street Journal thought it was important. They did a full-page article on it. Reader's Digest did an entire story on it. So all these companies were showing that, yes, we have some concern. But if minority participation is blocked, then again, you're locked out of the industry. And that's where we were in going forward to the next industry. Coming out of cable, cable became the new part of the internet because the internet became delivered by cable with broadband. Cable became control of the internet, but because they had the wire. The, having only one wire meant only one company could control that. And yet the, com- the Supreme Court already said, about only one company to do this, is a violation of the Constitution of the United States because it's First Amendment rights. And that's what we came down to. And they decided, you know, your First Amendment rights aren't really important to us. And so we found out why. Because they want to control minorities without doing anything for their benefit. And that's what the Democratic Party has done for years, for decades. I've, I've watched it for decades. 
I'm not saying I support the Republican Party. There's different candidates. I support different candidates. But again, I think we need to have a third party for everybody to balance out the corruption that has gone on with the two-party system in this country. And that's what we see. Republicans and Democrats are basically the same people. They take different positions because they represent different people. But if we balance them out with a small 10, 15, 20% control in the middle, they're going to swing with what that percentage wants because that's what's important. And that's what we need to stabilize the government. I mean, candidates that bring up the very important issues that you've discussed, they, uh, they, aren't, they aren't what today's society would call in the middle. Um, it's, it, it's to a lot of people very far right to talk about fa- fatherlessness. It's very uh, right wing to talk about gun control adds to violence instead of taking away from it. Very right way to talk about, uh, you know, morals. So it would have to be not in the middle per se, but someone that is independent, someone that is not swayed by the establishment of either side and that is willing to take a stand on issues that two uh, establishment parties um, have a difficult time uh, having candidates stand up for. They're not willing to do it. And, And we're even seeing it in conservative states like Ohio that that issue is coming up. I love how your book also dives into breaking down the drug war era, war on drugs, because I I grew up in school with the D.A.R.E. program and uh, kind of maybe at the tail end. And a lot of people didn't know when they were voting for the Kamala Harris Biden ticket that she had been at the forefront of so much criminalization of black men and your book really breaks down how this uh the war on drugs affected black communities in um different differentiating between uh how cocaine was treated and crack users were treated and how marijuana users were treated and it really seems like you know whether the whether the solution is to move towards decriminalization uh overall that there are much smarter ways to go about um dealing with supply and demand than than happened during the war on drugs. Right. I think you've hit a key element, supply and demand. As long as there's demand, there will be supply. And if you minimize demand, then supply must be minimized. But in fact, what you do is you create a situation where you cannot minimize demand because you have not controlled the people who desire it. And a lot of these people desire it because they're living a miserable life. You live in, in a community where you're getting gunned down and you know, you're 20 years old and your people are shooting bullets at you. I, I don't think your big concern is whether they have a drink or have a joint tonight. You're concerned about getting shot. And this situation creates a situation in your community whereby you don't feel like the same values that the other parts of the community have are important to you because they don't enforce the law the same way they do. So these things that become important, drugs. Drugs are all over the place. What is alcohol but a drug? What is cigarettes but a drug? They're all drugs. So the, the, the appeal is to find out how you are prosecuting people for the same behavior. And if you allow behavior to go on in the majority of society, that you're not allowed minorities, then that's why you have, in fact, so many people in prison for long prison sentences for doing the same thing that people have walked in the streets having done. And there's the problem. And when you're talking about the lack of, of, of violence as relates to marijuana, you're talking about the users. But I do think there is... There can be an issue with violence when you get to the higher ups who are the suppliers, who, uh, especially when you get into high dollar um, marijuana industry, bringing that into, you know, stateside, there obviously could be some, some violence there. When you spend and I love how your book is going to be violent. 
Yes. I like how your book points out that there is hypocrisy when the government says at one point in time that that something should not be allowed. and But then another point in time, it legalizes it because the government, they could get money from it. So it's like, so it kind of sends a message to the society that the morality of the use of the drug was never really the issue. It was really just was, that was the money. That's exactly yes. it. And not as the drug. And when they found that their friends were now could do, and again, look at marijuana. 90% of the people prosecuted for marijuana were black and brown. That's just a fact. You can look up the numbers yourself. And I'm only talking about in California. I don't know what goes on in Ohio, but 90% of the people who went to jail for marijuana were black and brown. Now, when it became legal, 90% of the people who had the licenses to sell it were white. So the minorities didn't get any benefit from the law change because they were not allowed to participate in the legalized version of this. And what they said is, well, you need to have $50 million to do this if you want to do it. So they found a way to limit minority involvement. You, when you eliminate the ability to participate in a legal enterprise by saying you have to have a license that's issued by the government and it's issued only to their friends, again, you, you create a criminal situation for people who are doing the same thing as other people are doing. And when you do that, who can respect the government when you do that? You can't. Because you are treated differently. The the racism is systemic, but not in the ways that the Democrat Party, uh, so-called Democrat values, are talking about. Um, it, even pointing out that like racism is not something that strictly comes from uh, white people. Because as you know, uh, with uh, critical race theory, the the power uh, the power theory is what drives who is assigned as racist or not, and. In accordance with that, you can say that someone who's white is uh, is racist, but you can't say someone who's black is. They can only be prejudiced because they are not the majority in the power structure. But that's that's just it's completely um, non-functional because when we see the the functional, the actual, the practical application of what happens as systemic racism occurs, there are players, major players in the perpetuation of so-called systemic racism that are black there are major players in it who are preventing change um so it's it, i i think that your book um is is a must read um i always give my guests the last word and um i would love for you to tell listeners how they can connect with you how they can read your books well you know i think the important thing is to read the book and understand what's going on i think it's important to understand What's going on and how will we place our reliance in? We're placing our reliance in a party that we've lied on continuously for many, many decades. But the fact is the facts show that they are not doing what they claim to be doing. Now, again, in Los Angeles, there was a black mayor, three black councilmen, and a black judge. Why did not nothing happen to benefit black people with all these people? Because the black mayor gave the franchise for cable television to his rich Jewish friends and who were already billionaires. They didn't have to do anything. They just turned around and sold it without ever developing anything. So again, we're locked out of the situation where we have access to the technology. Without access to the technology, you cannot participate in a technological society. So with the technology deprivation in a technology society, it is an atrocity. That's what it is. It's an atrocity. You are destroying. How many thousands of black people have been destroyed by not having access to the information and technology that everybody else in society had access to? thousands and tens of thousands over the last 40 years. I've seen it. I see how kids get gunned down in Chicago, New York, Philly, Houston, LA. 
get gunned down every night. Nobody says a thing. That's four kids get shot in Idaho. You hear it months on end. Everybody's talking about Idaho. Four kids got killed. They killed four kids last night in L.A. They killed four kids last night in Chicago. Nobody said a damn word about it because nobody's paying attention. If you don't control the media, that decides what the power is. And without that, we cannot grow and we cannot advance. So that's why I'm, I'm happy that somebody like you is coming along and say, hey, let's talk about this. And let's show what we can do and let's show what has happened because that's what's important. To know what has happened means you can get some future and understand the past does not have to be the future. But without understanding the past, you are doomed in the future to repeat the mistakes of the past. And so all I want to do is tell people. And that's because my job is to tell people. Now I've got other, I've got other jobs. I, got, I run, you know, a brokerage firm for investment banking. I've got a CPA. I handle business management for a number of entertainers here. And, you know, we do different things. So I'm, we're building affordable housing because that's something we can control. Even that. The government now has something. We don't want you to build this place in this. Later for you guys. We're going to build whatever we think is important. We want to build housing because 150,000 housing units in L.A. are short. So it means people can't have to live on the streets because we can't put housing in. And who stops it? The city of Los Angeles. You have never seen a more corrupt, racist city. And you can tell me about Mississippi, Georgia, anywhere you want to. I'm, I was born in Birmingham, so I know about Alabama. So you can't tell me any place is more racist than the city of Los Angeles. And they proved it. The documents will show they've proved it over the last 40 years and over the last five years. So you see all these people are getting indicted now. 20% of the L.A. City Council has been indicted for corruption. Some of them are pleading guilty. So if you have 20% of your organization, which is totally leading the people guilty, that means another 20% have, been, have not been caught. What goes on? Who suffers? The rich don't suffer. The middle class tries to do something, but the poor suffer. Those who don't have access to government or control over government suffer because they put the same people in routinely. Maxine Woods has been in there for 40 years. What's happened? What's improved in South L.A.? Nothing. Nothing. Now they've got another black mayor here in Los Angeles. And again, she came out of the Democratic Party. Now she's trying to be governor. She doesn't really care about being mayor. She's trying to push for governor. But hey, what are you doing? You're not doing anything that benefits the community. Because we don't have housing, we don't have decent jobs, we don't have education. How are you going to improve a community without any of these things? It can't happen. It simply cannot happen. I've seen it for 40 years. So I come to tell the story. That's my job is to tell the story. Obviously, I didn't never allow me to have cable, so it doesn't matter. So I came here to tell the story because I think it's important for all of us to understand what government is really about. And the people who are claiming to be your friends, they're not your friends. These people claiming, oh, we're so liberal, we're this, we're that. It's none of that. They are looking out for their best interest and the best interest of those who pay their bills. And that's what goes on. That's how government works. Now, maybe it'll never change. I'm, I can only tell the story I know because I live this story. And several million dollars in living a story makes you very understanding of a situation. And when it was all over, I got extremely sick and required brain surgery. So... Obviously, after that, after brain surgery, none of this becomes extremely important to me anymore because getting up off that hospital bed after a week of being in the hospital with brain surgery changes your view of everything, I assure you. It changes your view. My brother died because he contracted an illness in 1994, and he, they gave him one year to live in 94. He lived for 15 years. But again, he was 60 years old and he died. But he had been suffering for 15 years. And again, the situation of one CBS saying some bad things about him that weren't true, saying he had committed a crime, which he did not commit. And two, the city of Los Angeles. These two were tied together because the people in New York would come to Los Angeles to push their programs. 
the programming they called it and the issues of how you do people and how do you treat those who are controlled by the government becomes an issue. I'm so glad that you have been here to tell the story that were for you really taking that pen to paper and being persistent and wanting to get this story out. It could have been a piece of history that was lost. So I'm so grateful that that you did that. Clinton, I can't thank you enough for joining me. It has been just an amazing conversation. Thank you so much.